0: The reading today comes from Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. And Gretchen, sorry, can you grab me that water? I left it there. Thank you. I'm going to need this. <laughs> uh, As we jump in, would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you. And yeah, what a great text to read. That you are the God who has appointed Jesus to be the king of all things. The king of the universe. Lord, we know that he is at your right hand and he rules and he reigns now. And that one day soon, that rule and that reign will be felt in every atom of the universe as all is made new for your glory. God, help us to hope in that. Help us to have a hope in the return of Christ that purifies us, that makes us more devoted to you and more deeply in love with you as our king. We ask that you would work powerfully by your Holy Spirit now for our sake and for Jesus' glory. Amen. This morning, as we jump in, I got a question for you, and it's this. What are you hoping in? What are you hoping in? What vision of the, of the future right now in your lives are you holding on to to kind of get through the, the days that are tough? As human beings, we all, we all do this. We all have things that we hope in to get through the days that, that we exist in and, and the, the suffering that we experience in this life in a hope of a better day down the road, in hope of, of a better day around the corner. What are you hoping in? What are you hoping? in? I think for some of us right now, that the thing that we're hoping is pretty self-evident. We're just hoping for 2020, right? 2019 be gone. A, a new year is coming. And my hope is in that new year, that it will be a better year than 2019. For other people, maybe here, maybe your hope to get through the dreary days in Vancouver is just, I hope for Christmas. I hope for a bit of a holiday. I'd like a few days off. I need to catch my breath. It's been nuts. I want Christmas break. (laughs) Give me presents and all those things as well. For others of us, maybe it's a new job. Maybe you think, you know, it's been tough, but a new job's coming. I'm going to have a bigger paycheck. I'm going to have a new start. I'm going to have new coworkers, a new boss. Man, my hope's there. Better days are coming because I'm going to have a new job. For others, maybe it's it's your hope in yourself. Maybe you're just trusting in you. You think you know, if I just put my trust in me, I, I think that 2020 will be a year where I'm a, a stronger person. If I work hard enough. Where I can become a healthier person. Where I can become a, a more compassionate person. I can grow in all the ways that I need to so that better days will be here with me. Maybe your trust in yourself. Or maybe your, your trust and your hope is in a new relationship. Maybe you have a friendship right now that's just beginning and you've got a lot of hope in it. And this is a good friendship. I'm excited about this friendship. It's, it's going to uh, be uh, uh, just a, a note of, of good things to come uh, in the years to come in this friendship. But here's the question. Have your hopes ever let you down? Have your expectations and your hopes let you down? It's amazing to me as human beings how often, and I don't think it's just me, how often my hopes are frustrated. I think how, how often all of our hopes are frustrated as we, we have such great hope in someone or something coming that will make all the difference. Right? But then it gets there and you're like, man, that was kind of disappointing. It didn't give me what I longed for. And I think we realized this morning that we actually don't just need any hope. Not any hope will do. We need a sure hope. We need a certain hope. And the good news for us is that into our profound need for hope, the Bible offers something sure. The Bible offers something steadfast because the Bible is a a book full of hope from beginning to end. It's a book that you read almost every page full of hope. And all of that hope is fixed on something sure. It's fixed on someone sure on the expectations of a coming King. The Bible's hope is fixed on Jesus. We're in our last Advent sermon this morning, and we began this series uh, about Jesus as a turning point of history. And we began looking at Jesus as king. Then we looked at him as prophet and priest, and now we're returning to looking at him as, as king again today as we wrap it up. And the first time we looked at Jesus as king, we looked at the way that that God has worked through Jesus 2,020 years ago, sending him here to earth at his first arrival to begin to to draw us, to draw humanity back together under his love, under his rule and his reign, to to reconcile us with himself, that we know his love, we know his grace. But today we're looking not at Jesus' first advent, we're looking at his second advent. We're looking at the way that Jesus is the king who's going to come again to not just bring us under his reign, but to fix this whole world that's broken as he brings every atom of creation together under his authority and under his his rule and makes it better. We're going to look at Jesus as king and his second coming this morning. And as we do that, we're going to look at, at it in three stages. We're going to look at this creation and consider what's broken about it, what's actually wrong with this world anyway? Then we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the king who is coming again. We're going to consider who he he is as he's coming in his glory. And then third, we're going to look at the way that he's promised to fix what's broken and to bring us a new creation. So three points. That will be the broken creation, Jesus the king, and new creation. Those are our three points this morning. So we're just going to dive right in. First point, broken creation. Well, as we've been talking about, the great hope of the Bible is for Jesus to return and to exert his rule. And his reign here in this place and to make all things new, to fix what's broken. But even, even if we pulled this room, even if we pulled Vancouver, I bet that we'd have different ideas of what's broken in this world. Do you think that would happen? If we asked somebody on the street, hey, hey, what's wrong with this world? Would they say the same thing, the same thing that you say? Would everybody in this city say the same thing about what's broken? I think what we realize is that even when it comes to understanding what exactly is broken in this world, we need some help because we weren't there before it was, before it was wrecked. We don't know how it was originally. I think we're kind of like uh, dysfunctional our kids growing up in a dysfunctional home in a little bit, a little bit, right? Where we, we haven't even seen normal, so we don't have any idea of what normal is, right? We need someone to tell us to help us understand what is broken. Thankfully, praise God. Thankfully, the Bible helps us here. But I want to illustrate this for you. Let me illustrate this unknowing about our brokenness this way. Uh, Do you guys like Lego? Yeah? Everybody likes Lego? I like Lego. I still like Lego. I'll I'll confess. And I confess to you more that in preparation for this very minute point of my sermon, I may have spent far too many minutes uh, looking at Lego videos, giant Lego sets. So just bear with me for a moment, but imagine a giant and an intricate set of Lego. Lego. Maybe imagine the $900 Star Wars Millennium Falcon 7,500 pieces, ages 16 plus and over Lego set. And if you're thinking, gee, Brent, that was awfully specific, now you know what to buy me for Christmas. It's all good. It's all good. But imagine that set, and imagine you give it to me for Christmas. Thank you. I appreciate that. And imagine I built it, but I left it perched kind of precariously on the countertop. And then you walked in a couple of hours after it had teetered off the, the countertop and shattered into a gazillion pieces on the floor. Well, 7,500 pieces on the floor to be exact. And imagine for the sake of the illustration that you don't know what Star Wars is and you don't even really know what Lego is. And you walk into the room. You would probably intuit that it was broken. and You probably feel that it broke you as you stepped on a couple of the pieces with your bare feet, right? But you wouldn't know exactly what was broken. You wouldn't know what it was supposed to look like in the first place. I think our problem looking at the brokenness of this world as human beings is like that. Because even though we recognize things in this world are broken in some way, we need to be told what's broken. We need to be helped to find out what is broken. And thankfully, the Bible shows us, the Bible helps us to understand that though this world was made right and good, that God said all that he made was good, that relationships functioned properly in the beginning, and our relationship with God was good in the beginning, and the creation functioned as it should in the beginning, that It broke. That it broke. That because of human sin, because our first parents, Adam and Eve, they didn't trust God. They didn't respond to his love and to his rule with faith and obedience. They turned away from the voice of God and his good purposes and trusted instead in Satan and God's enemy as he lied to them and deceived them. And it broke. Creation broke. And in Genesis 3, we actually read about the consequences of that sin. About what the Bible calls the curse the deep brokenness that affects all of creation. And we're going to turn to this passage now in Genesis 3. And as we do that, I want you to see three things about what's broken in creation. First, I want you to see in Genesis 23 to 24, that our relationship with God was broken because of sin. This is fundamental. Look here. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him, sent sent mankind, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of God's presence. They were cast out of the presence of God and the intimacy that they had with God, walking with him in the cool of the garden. It was broken. That intimacy was was broken. And that brokenness is the fundamental brokenness that we need to consider when we think about the brokenness of creation. That's the fundamental piece. And here's the thing. Even though you and I... I think in our lives, even though you and I feel a deep uncertainty so many times about who we are and what we're made for, where we have all this angst, who am I? What am I made for? We try to plug different things into our lives to to satisfy us and to to fulfill what we were made for and to to be plugged into that, that spot of who am I and how am I supposed to live in this world? Even though we have uncertainty about these things, we need to realize the Bible doesn't have any confusion about it at all. From beginning to end, the Bible is crystal clear, that you and I were made with a purpose. And our purpose is this. It was to enjoy God's love for us. And it's to respond to God's love for us by loving him with all of our heart. Loving him with all of our soul and with all of our mind. We were made, Christ City. we were made to find fulfillment in one place. In that relationship with God that was broken. But sin, sin wrecked that. Sin separated mankind from God. But the second thing we need to see is that out of that broken relationship with God, we were broken. We were broken as sin took root in the human family and multiplied outward. And to see this, all we have to do is read the chapters that follow Genesis 3. In just the, the paragraphs following Genesis 3, we read about the way that, that Adam and Eve's children, how Cain killed Abel. And then things went from bad to worse as sin multiplied outward and got worse and worse. And havoc wrecked humanity through sin. And it comes and it touches us in this room, doesn't it? The sin that, that you feel, the, the things that are, are wrong in you that you feel, they have a source back in the sin of Adam and Eve. When lust grabs hold of you like a disease, it has a source. That's sinfulness. sinfulness. That, that bitterness that, that you feel and that unforgiveness in your heart, this rots you from within. It started with that first sin. That addiction that, that drags you down, you, you sure wish you could be free of that thing, but it's holding you down. That, that sin it came all the way back from this brokenness with Adam and Eve. That indifference and that apathy that numbs your soul. You wish you could shake the laziness and move forward in life, but you can't. That's, a, that's part of that sin that came from all the way back at the beginning. Selfishness and hatred take root in us through this sin, and they shatter all manner of human relationships. From a broken relationship here in this room to all the way to war and even to genocide. All has the same source, this hatred and this sin coming from the beginning. And I think we're helped in some ways by, by modern psychology because we know today, right, that, that much of our brokenness can be traced to our childhood. Right? We, we know that. But we need to realize that secular psychology doesn't actually trace the problem back far enough. Sure, there's brokenness in your childhood, but our brokenness as human beings through sin, it can be traced back all the way to that sin that took root in our hearts through our first parents. Not just our parents, but our first parents. And that's dwelt inside of us Ever since. But the brokenness that's in us and in our relationship with God, it's not the only brokenness in this world. It's not just relational brokenness. It's more than that. Third, because of sin, because of the curse, the created world itself was broken. The created world itself was broken. Just look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. In that passage, we read this. God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3 tells us that... All manner of things are broken in the created world. Pain and childbirth. You can thank the brokenness that came through the sin of our first parents. Work being hard. Work being frustrating. Work being futile so often in our lives as we're frustrated to get the job done. We can look back to, to this brokenness and this curse that came at the very beginning. Even the ground resists our labors. Do you see that? Thorns and thistles, uh, it shall bring forth for us. It resists us. Harvests are failing and famine comes because of this curse, because of this brokenness in this world. And then last of all, death. And death is part of this curse. It says, there at the end for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death comes for us all because of this sin and this brokenness in this world. And we can extrapolate from that. That means that the disease is not right. That means that, that cancer is part of a brokenness in this world that is there because of sin. That means that when you watch a loved one become emaciated and slowly lose their grip on life, that that's not how it's supposed to be. It means that the death that you've experienced is not right. It shouldn't be here like this. All this is part of what is broken. And God will not let it continue forever. So, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There are a lot of people in Vancouver, in our modern culture, that would say to you, hey, you know, suffering is just the way it is. We need to be stoic about it. And we need to embrace it. In fact, actually, our growth as human beings is kind of getting over our hope for it to be gone and just to embrace it as it is. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible agrees with the longing that is in every one of your hearts, the longing for something fixed, for something better. The Bible says, yes, yes. Yes, and the Bible has a confident hope in the arrival of King Jesus to fix what is broken. So look with me at our second point, King Jesus. Because in the face of all that we place our hope in and are inevitably disappointed by, the Bible promises a coming king. The Bible promises a king who will finally and forever fix all that's broken. And you know what? He came. Praise God. He came approximately 2,020 years ago. Jesus came. He came as a descendant of Adam and Eve, who God had promised would break the curse and who would bring life. He came as a descendant of David, who was promised would come and who would rule. He came and he entered this world in order to free us from our sin, to forgive us of sin, to bring us into relationship with God and to exert his rule in our hearts. But he's coming again. He's coming again to do far more than that. But I want you to notice this. He came as man, yes, but he also came as God, didn't he? But when we think about Jesus and his first coming, we realize that that there was something about Jesus' deity that was veiled. He came in humility. He came in meekness. He was born in a manger. He came and he He was born, his his diapers stank. He went through all the things that children do in, in in our lives, in our experience. He did not abhor human flesh, but took it. We saw him in that humanness and he suffered alongside us. He was willing to even go and be betrayed and spat upon and go to a cross and to die for our salvation. And while he was dying, the crowds around him, they ridiculed him. And they mocked him. They said, "Jesus, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. If you are God, pull yourself off of that cross." And he could have done it, but he didn't. He veiled his deity, and he saved us through his suffering. We need to realize this: when Jesus returns, when Jesus returns, the veiling of his deity is not going to happen anymore. When Jesus returns no one will mock him. When Jesus returns, no one will spit on him. No one will oppose him. When Jesus returns, we will see the fullness of his power, the fullness of who he is as God. And when he returns, he will not hide his glory. I want to show you some passages of scripture that that help us to catch a glimpse of this right now. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 with me to see Jesus in his glory. John writes this. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Look at Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 13 that say this, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, which speak of Jesus when he returns. It says this, at the name of Jesus, every knee should or will, will bow. At the name of Jesus. Think about that. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's king that he's God, that he rules to the glory of God the Father. When he comes again, he's going to come with power. And when he comes again, no one will stop him from fixing everything in creation that is broken. No one will stop him from exerting his, his rule and his reign and drawing everything under his authority and under his power and under his goodness and under his love. He will be king. He will be king. When he comes, he'll fix what's broken. We're going to look at our second point now, new creation. We've looked at this broken creation. We've looked at King Jesus briefly. Now we're going to turn to our last point to see what it is that Jesus will do when he comes to make things new, to fix what's broken in this world. And as we turn to our last point, think about this. Think about the hymn that we just sang this morning. We sang this hymn, Joy to the World. It's written by Isaac Watts. And we commonly think of this hymn, Joy to the World, we, we love this hymn, as a Christmas hymn, right? You, you hear it in, a, in September, and you say, turn that, that music off, that's Christmas music. That belongs in December. But actually, we need to realize that, that Isaac Watts, he wrote Joy to the World not as a Christmas hymn, not as a first Advent hymn, but as a second Advent hymn. Not as a hymn about the first coming of Jesus, but about the second coming of Jesus, and the hope of this hymn is bound up with this king who will come and who will make all things new. We see that perfectly in the third verse that we sing this morning when he writes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. When Jesus returns, he's going to exert his rule and he's going to cause his blessings to be what fill up and push out the curse from every atom of creation and our hope is for him to do that and thankfully as we said the bible shows us what that will look like so i want to show you uh, a number of things now about what will happen and how jesus will fix what is broken in this world when he returns so let me make you some sub points first when jesus returns number one when jesus returns he will finally and permanently bring with him true justice when Jesus returns, he will finally and permanently bring with him true justice. We're going to look again at, at Revelation. Actually, a lot of our texts are from Revelation. I should note that much of what we read in the book of Revelation is full of, of these symbols. It's deeply symbolic language. But I, I think that we can still catch the main point fairly easily and fairly clearly as we, as we look at it together. So if it feels strange to you, just know that it's not your typical uh, kind of literate church. It's a little bit different than we're used to. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, talking about the justice that Jesus will bring. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Ever since mankind first sinned against God, there's been a lack of perfect justice in this world. There's been a lack of perfect justice in this world. But when Jesus returns, there will be a judgment. When he returns, there will be a finality with dealing with wickedness and with sin. It's going to be finished. It will be done. I know this is going to be kind of a, a, a whiplash sort of point, but have you ever stayed at an Airbnb? It's whiplashy. I know it seems out of context, but bear with me for a second. Have you ever stayed at an Airbnb, which wasn't all that it had promised to be? Have you ever stayed somewhere? And you're, you're looking in advance. You're looking at the the pictures on the internet and you're like, man, this looks so good. This place looks awesome. But then you show up and there's like hair in the bed. You know, the, the counters are sticky. Uh, Somebody didn't take the trash out and hey, there's laundry. There's laundry here. You know, the towels aren't even clean. What's going on? And you're thinking I was promised a vacation, but I got here and it's gross. What the heck? I don't want that. Look, look, Jesus doesn't promise us eternity and then give it to us halfway cleaned. No, when Jesus prepares to bring us into a world that he's making new, he cleans house. He deals with the wickedness that's in it once and for all. And all who have opposed Jesus in their sin, they'll be purified out of it. And those who have been righteously anticipating Jesus' second coming, they'll be vindicated for their hope and for their trust in him. And I think we need this. This is a hard text, but I think we need this. Because when do we get true justice in this world? When does it happen? True justice. True justice. When is sin really dealt with? And when is righteousness truly, really rewarded in our lives? It doesn't happen. What can be done? What can be done to make a real wrong right? When you've been slandered, when you've been hurt, when, when the awful things in this life happen, the rape and the murder, the war, the genocide, what can be done to bring true justice? Justice that doesn't just punish somebody, but justice that makes things whole. When does that happen? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But we need real justice. And when Jesus returns, wickedness will be judged and righteousness will finally be rewarded. But can we be honest for a second? For for sinful human beings, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Because we realize that all of us deserve the judgment of Jesus Christ when he returns. In our sin, that's what we deserve. If we don't have hope first in Jesus' first advent, we're not going to be able to have hope in his coming judgment and his justice. But if we trust that Jesus has come now, that he came in his humility and in his meekness and in his patience, that he came in order to suffer and to die and to point the full weight of heaven's justice at himself and to take it in our stead. If we can trust that, then we can have hope that, that Jesus righteousness covers me, that when God opens the book and looks at my life before his throne, he's going to look at me and he's going to see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That I have received grace as a gift, the mercy of God, And that I am prepared to face real judgment and to come out the other side. God is so good to give us his patience now so that on the day of his coming justice, we can have hope. We can have joy. So the first thing that Jesus is going to do when he comes back is he's going to bring true justice. We just looked at that. Second, when Jesus returns, he doesn't just clean this world. He actually cleans us. He cleans us too inside of us as all that is sinful, broken and distorted. in you and me is fixed. It's purified. Just look at Revelation chapter 21, verse two. John writes, and I saw the holy city, the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, at the very end of the Bible, a man named John, he's shown a vision of eternity in this book called Revelation. And what he sees here in this passage, he sees a city. But did you notice it's a bit of a weird sounding city? It's a city who is a bride. It's a city who is a people. She's mixing his metaphors. It's a city who are people, a city that is the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And it's a city that Jesus describes or that John describes in a very particular way. He says he sees a holy city, a new city. What this is saying is that when Jesus comes, when he returns, he'll take us to himself and he will finally and completely finish the work that he's begun in us. We will be holy as he is holy. We'll be like him. We'll be pure. Sin will be gone. And that has amazing implications for us. That means that that you... You will never again go to bed feeling the weight of guilt and shame in your life. That means that you will never again hurt others in your sin. Praise God. You will never again wound somebody else in your sinfulness. And never again will you be wounded by somebody here in this church, by me, by Jonathan, by Fred, by anybody else here. You'll never again be wounded by us because of our sin. That sin will be gone. It means that never again will you cave into your temptations to turn away from God. It means that never again will you doubt the love of God. It means that never again will you pour out your heart in worship and in hope, and in longing in a false God. Never again. You will perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you will perfectly love forever your neighbor as yourself. Sin will be gone. Praise God. And then third, when Jesus returns, he's going to continue the renewal he will put an end to death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, also verses 26 to 27, say this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. The great enemy of humanity, death itself, will die and it will be killed by Jesus forever. It will be gone. And all that comes with it, those phone calls that come with that news that you are never ready to hear, it's never going to come again. Those diseases that that wreck our bodies, they'll be gone forever. Forever. We'll be given life. The life of Christ will be manifest in us, and we will be raised, we'll be resurrected physically in the life of Jesus to be with him forever. His life will spread through all the broken creation, making all things new. It's what he says in Revelation 21, verse 5. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. His life's not just going to touch a little bit. His life's going to touch everything all that is broken, all that is dying, all that's been corrupted because of the curse, because of sin, it will all be made new. Never again will there be futility. Never again will there be the hardship that we experience or the suffering or the pain that we know as Jesus' life fills everything. And fourth, on that day, on that day we'll be home. On that day we will finally forever Be home. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 to 3, and also uh, just actually just 2 to 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's us. That's us. It's the people of God coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And our husband is Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We will be home. That separation of sin that kept us from God, it's gone. Heaven is collapsed in on earth and God makes his dwelling with us. The end of the story as human beings is that finally we'll be with God. The fulfillment that we long for on earth will finally be fully realized as we are together with God, as we see him in his power and his holiness, as we see him in his love, as he loves us and we love him with all of our hearts, as we're free to worship him with every ounce of our being to be in his presence. And when he takes us home to be with him forever, Be encouraged. It will be God Himself who comforts you. It will be God Himself who comforts you. Look at Revelation 21, verse 4. It says this He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, are you wounded today? Tri-City, are you wounded today? Are you suffering right now? Are you sorrowing? Are you hurting? Is there a grief that's buried so deep in your soul that you can't imagine it being dealt with? You've buried it over to try and keep the pain from, from filling your heart, but it's there. This passage, us coming home to be with God, God comforting us, promises us that God himself will soon be on his knees, looking you in the face, looking you eye to eye and wiping the tears from your eyes. God himself comforting you, embracing you and the hardship that you're experiencing. And all will be well. be forever with the Lord. Look, Jesus is king. He has come. He sits today at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming again. And as we conclude, I want you to think about this. There is a weightiness to Jesus as the eternal king. There's a weightiness to him. The most massive objects in our universe, black holes, they're so dense that they draw light even into their clutches and prevent it from escaping. Jesus' weightiness as the king of the universe is like that. He's drawing everything to himself. All things being drawn to Jesus. Do you feel that? Do you feel it this morning? He's drawing this church forward in history and hope toward his second coming. And he's beckoning all of us. He's beckoning us to come to him and to place our hope completely in him. To take it off of, of those false substitutes that will only ever disappoint us. And to put it on Jesus to trust in Jesus, to trust in King Jesus. First Peter chapter one, verse 13 says this, set your hope fully, not 98%, not 99%, but a hundred percent fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's my exhortation for you this morning. Then it's this, let the gravitational pull of Jesus' second coming. Be the center of your life. Give into it. Whether willingly or unwillingly. He's going to draw everything to himself. Let yourself be drawn to Jesus. Let him radically reorienting, reorient everything about you. So that he's at the center. So you submit to him as the king of the universe. So you embrace him as your Lord and Savior. If he's coming again, what could possibly matter more than orienting all of your life around him? If he's coming again, what could possibly matter more than him? So look at your priorities. Look at your calendar. Look at your wallet. Look at your evangelism strategies in your life today. If Jesus doesn't feature centrally in each of these places, you're probably not hoping in him. He's probably not the center. You're probably hoping in something actually that is a false substitute. You're probably hoping in something that will only disappoint you and won't fulfill all that you long for. But if he's coming again, if he says who he is, is who he is, then radically reshaping all of your life around him will be worth it. Radically reorienting the fabric of your life around the central point of Jesus will be worth it. No matter what you have to give up in order to make Jesus the center of your life, it will be worth it. He's coming again, and he will rule, and he will reign. Soon every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So this Christmas... Today, would you, join me, would you join me in worshiping Jesus with all of your heart? Would you join me in fighting your sin, putting it to death, and living in his righteousness more because he's coming again? Would you join me in seeking to share the love of Christ with everybody around you because he's coming again? Would you join me in seeking his glory now in advance of his arrival? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.